Acts 18. We've been using these summer months, last summer, this summer, and then next summer, to go through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, one chapter at a time. We'll finish next summer. <clears throat> Today we're in Acts 18. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and I love, I absolutely love maps, and so here we go. Here's a map of his second missionary journey, and we're, we're going to talk most of the time here about how he's in the city of Corinth, and that's right about there, and that is a city that's now modern-day Greece. Again, it's the second missionary journey, and he's in Corinth, and we're going to talk about Corinth more in a few moments. But this is near the end of his second missionary journey, and again, I've titled this message, Planting a Church in Sin City. And I'm just going to share four lessons from Acts chapter 18. We'll get right with it. Lesson number one, this may seem obvious to some of you, but maybe to some of us it isn't quite so obvious. This is real history. This is part of, this is the real history of the early church. And like the rest of the Bible, the book of Acts, it's real and it's verifiable history. We do well to remember and to affirm, reaffirm the historicity of Acts and the whole Bible. Starting with Corinth itself, that was, that's a historical city. Of course, Athens, another historical city in Greece. Every city, every region mentioned in the book of Acts is verified. These aren't just made-up cities and made-up regions. They're historically verifiable. Also, people of history connect in the book of Acts. The emperor Claudius, we'll read this. Actually, you know what? After, in a moment, we'll read, do the scripture reading. But the emperor Claudius in verse 2, he's recorded in secular history. He really was an emperor of Rome. And then in verse 12 of Acts 18, Gallio, he's the, the proconsul. He again recorded in secular history. And now we're going to, you can uh, flip up back to the scripture reading, Angie. We're going to just read Acts, not the whole chapter, Acts 18, 1 through 5. To give you a break, I'm going to have you stand while I read God's word. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded, again, that's Claudius the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. You may be seated again. Again, the point to take home is this. In the book of Acts, like the rest of the Bible, it's historically accurate. It's verifiable. Most of the Bible is written history. Most of it is a history book. And if it's not that, another good portion of it is what I like to call pre-written history. History that's written before the fact, otherwise known as prophecies. The Bible is unique. It's the only book, it's the only religious book containing prophecies, pre-written history, which either they all have come true or they're going to come true. 
No other religious book can make that boast. The Bible is God's Word. It's entirely accurate. It's verifiable. And folks, it's been the devil's tactic from the very beginning to cast doubt on what God has said. The devil said to Eve, Has God indeed said? Did God really say that? Well, maybe he really didn't say that. That's the doubt the devil wants to put in people's minds. And he put doubt into Eve's mind. Or, well, maybe he said that, but maybe he really didn't mean it. Maybe he was just being allegorical. Maybe he was being metaphorical. Maybe he was just using figurative speech. No, God knows how to communicate. And he meant Genesis 1, creation, to be literal, historical, accurate, seven days creation, and a day to, six days creation, a day to rest, approximately 6,000 years ago, not millions of years ago, not billions of years ago. He meant Genesis 6, 7, and 8, Noah's flood to be literal, historical, and accurate, and so on from the very first, first book of the Bible to the last book, Revelation, including the book of Acts. Here's why I want to share that again. If the devil can get us to doubt any part of the Bible, he has a wedge. He's got a wedge from which to separate us further from the rest of the Word, the rest of the Bible, and from God himself. So that's lesson number one. The whole Bible, including the book of Acts, it's trustworthy. It's historically accurate. Lesson number two. Lesson number two, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus said, on this rock, the confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16. Corinth was a megacity. It had hundreds of thousands of people in it. It was, that time, it was a beautiful, modern city. Interesting, 150 years before Christ, before Jesus was born, 150 years before that, it was destroyed by the Romans. But then, 100 years later, about 50 years before Christ, Julius Caesar, he rebuilt the city. It became a seat of government for the province for a province of Rome. It was quite a city. It had three harbors. They were strategically located. It had a north-south trade route that ran right through it. It was a place of commercial trade, and merchants from all over the world came there. And it had a Ralph Ingolstadt arena. It had an amphitheater that seated over 14,000 people. It was materially prosperous, The people were intellectuals. They were alert. It was also a city that was morally corrupt. It was a place of moral corruption. Even in the pagan world in which it resided, it was known for its moral corruption. Corinth came to be known as, as licentiousness. It had several nicknames during Paul's day. Carnal Corinth, Sin City, Vanity Fair. 
And to Corinthianize a person was to corrupt a person. To Corinthianize a person was to corrupt him or her, to take him beyond his moral limits. But God directed Paul to Corinth to plant a church there, and he stayed there 18 months, a year and a half. His work was cut out for him. I think that's the longest he ever stayed in any one of the cities which he visited. Corinth was like the gates of hell. And Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Thus, the Corinthian church was planted and it grew. We know it from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 2, the letters in the New Testament, it was not without its problems, but it rooted down nonetheless. God, through Paul, planted the church. So here's the lesson. There's no place today that is too dark or morally corrupt, but that a church with the light of the gospel can shine there. I like this example from, this is from 1994, prison, a notorious prison in Argentina, almost prison. Almost prison is and was and is Argentina's largest prison, maximum security. It had over 3,000 inmates. This city, this prison, chaos and terror reigned. There was murder. There was extortion. There was sexual abuse. There were riots. The prison was virtually under control of the mafia and drug dealers. Almost prison in Argentina. A church of Satan operated in the prison. There were animal sacrifices. Local pastors tried to make headway in there, tried to minister there, but often they had trouble even getting inside. One preacher trying to get, before he got halfway through the tunnel into the prison, he became so ill they had to carry him back out again. But a turning point came. A well-known pastor had a falling. He committed a crime. He was arrested. And he was sent to almost prison. When he got there, he repented of his sin. And he asked God for another chance. He became filled with the Spirit and he witnessed fearlessly in that prison he witnessed to mafia bosses, great gang leaders, drug lords, and Satanist priests. In this pit of hell, a small group of believers emerged. Facing persecution, they were given a, 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 a cell block that was set aside for them. It happened to be on the fourth floor where the worst of the criminals were also jailed. Following that, hundreds of conversions occurred Almost half the inmates became Christians. As a result, the number of the guards was reduced from 300 to 30. And recidivism of the Christian inmates was less than one half of 1%. Typical recidivism is over 50%. The gates of hell indeed did not prevail at almost... And no matter where we are, God's church is meant to shine brightly, including this church in this community. And some of that was 
evident just this past weekend with Mission to Our City. That's lesson two. Lesson three. Husbands and wives make great teams for God. Exhibit A is Priscilla and Aquila. I read about them, the scripture reading. Aquila, his name means eagle. He was Jewish. His wife Priscilla, her name, her name means venerable. They were expelled from Rome, as the scripture tells us, by the emperor Claudius. Get out of Rome. They left Rome and they settled in Corinth as tent makers. They made, all together now, they made tents. Not only tents, they made awnings and sails, anything they could make and spread out, they made. And they could have been engineers, they could have been architects, they could have been dentists, they could have been accountants, they could have been optometrists. They were tent makers. The Apostle Paul, he did some of that tent making himself as well. So he was called a tent maker. He provided for his own ways by making tents. He didn't always do that his whole ministry, but he was doing that then. So he was called a tent maker. And so nowadays, if you have a, a, a pastor who works outside the church to provide for his ways, called a tent maker. If they would have been optometrists back then, now if a, if a pastor was working to, from himself, and he'd say, well, even if he was a tent maker now, they'd call him, he's an optometry pastor. Think about it. They were also Christians, Priscilla and Aquila were. They helped Paul in the gospel. They're mentioned three times, excuse me, six times in the New Testament. They're always mentioned together. Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila and Priscilla together in the New Testament. And <clears throat> Paul says this, he called them fellow workers, Romans 16. He called them fellow workers. He said that they risked their own necks for his life. We don't know what that was, but they risked their necks, their lives for Paul. They were a husband and wife team. Folks, it's been my honor to be teamed similarly with Jean for these past 43 plus years of marriage. And I want to show you first Let me go back in time. I don't think we invited any of you to our wedding, but here's our wedding invite. So this is the on the left side. That was that's the front of our wedding invite. And Psalm 34:3 says, "Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together." And then you open it up, and it said, "In the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing that marriage is ordained of God, Thomas Stephen Dunham and Jean Marie Holiday, request your." presence at our wedding. That was May 26, 1979. Put it in your phone or write it down. You can send us a card next year on our 44th wedding anniversary. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That was our wish as we got engaged and married that God would use us together and we could exalt his name together. Then we have our next picture, our wedding I know I've showed that before. That is one beautiful head of hair. And Jean's has a wonderful head of hair too. But that's, I used to have hair like that. I'm jealous of myself now. 
God has fulfilled that verse in our marriage. Psalm 34.3, that wish of ours to be a team for Jesus in his church. <clears throat> Whatever I am, I owe most of it to Gene. <clears throat> Whatever we've done, we've done together as a team. Even if Jean was home and I was gone, she was with me with the kids in spirit. Jean released me and supported me and teamed with me. When we started to work for God in Grand Forks and UND in the 1980s, she was part of it. For two years, for two years, twice a week, we invited students over to our house for dinner, for, for meals. Friday night dinner and then Sunday lunch for two years straight. All while we were adding to our family. She was supportive of me in my efforts to lead the church. She still is. Sometimes I'd be gone for regional or national pastors meetings. For years I would drive to church alone ahead of time and then she would come later with the kids. Only in the last 10 years we've been able to go to church together. How sweet that is. She never complained when I was gone, but was always supportive. And she demonstrated that to our kids, so they grew up with that as well. They prayed for me and for the work God called me to do. Jean partnered with me in the gospel, just like Priscilla and Aquila. One of our greatest joys now is teaching Awana on Wednesday nights. We love doing that together. And yes... She also has opinions. She has strong opinions, and she shares them with me. She's not a wallflower. She's a strong woman. Let's show Psalm 34.3 again. We had no idea how God will fulfill that verse in our lives, and he's not done doing so. We're not done. He's still doing that. Now, just a word to wives here now. Just a word to you wives. If your husband has even a spark of interest in serving the church or becoming a leader in the church, fan that spark. Make it a flame. Encourage him. Support him. Pray for him. Demonstrate your support for him to your children and release him. And you know what? You'll get back. You'll get back a better husband. And your kids will get back a better father. Because we don't just take people away and you know do our thing with them. We help them. The most important thing we can do for men is help them to be better husbands and better fathers. That way they'll be better servants and leaders in the church. Lesson four, last lesson we're going to go through today is I just called this step with the light, step into the light, step with the light. And the case in point is Apollos. This is Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. I'm leaving a little bit of it out as I read. But it says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures came to Ephesus. So this is a different city now. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John, John the Baptist. 
So here's Priscilla and Aquila again. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Then he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So here's another, another map. He was now, he was in, whoops, Ephesus. So that's across the Aegean Sea from Corinth, and that's Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Okay. He was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. And get this, he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible, which at that time, of course, was the Old Testament. And he didn't know of Jesus yet, per se, the fulfillment in the Old Testament, but he would go to synagogues and he would paint the picture of who the Messiah was. Using Old Testament scripture, this is who the Messiah is going to be. He'd paint the picture accurately of Jesus. All from his knowledge of the Old Testament. Well, Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus as well, and they took him aside, two of them, not just Aquila, but Priscilla as well, and they told him about Jesus, the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, they shined extra light for him, and he immediately embraced Christ and then went back to the synagogue. And again here, he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He stepped into the light as God gave it to him. He knew the Old Testament thoroughly, so it was easy for him to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment. He knew his Bible, the Old Testament, how about you? Louis, good to have you. Have a chair. Praise the Lord. Glad you could make it. He knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament. How about you? Do you, do you know your Bible like Apollos knew his? And this, would others say that you're mighty in the Scriptures? Are you mighty in the Scriptures? like Apollos was? Have you read it through? Do you read it daily? Do you memorize it? Are you mighty in the Scriptures? Remember that Apollos was teachable. He was obedient to the light that God showed him, and God gave him more light. He, he, he took in the Old Testament, and then, oh here, Jesus is the fullness of that. He received it. Question, are you hesitating in any way from any step of obedience that God has shown you, that God has shined a light on in your path? Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Oftentimes God is like this. I'll give you this next step, but you need to take it before the next one. I, I may not show you step two, three, four, and five till you take step one. If we don't take that step, he just may withhold the next one. Is there any step of obedience to God's word in which you're hesitating? Think. Maybe, maybe it's getting back systematically reading your Bible. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's giving slash tithing. Maybe God is poking at your heart to be baptized or to share the gospel, share the good news more. 
Maybe to serve in the church, volunteer in the church. Maybe he's poking at your heart to forgive somebody. You're holding on to, holding on to offense you need to forgive. Anything come to mind, that's the light God is shining, that step. Act on it. God will give you the next step to go to take as well. There's an awful lot here in Acts chapter 18. I'm just going to give you a quick review and then we'll have our last song. Again, number one, this is real history. Acts and the rest of the Bible, it's accurate and completely reliable. We can bank on it. Number two, lesson number two, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We can be confident of that. Number three, wives and husbands make great teams for God. And with that, I just just reminded of this, another great team, Billy Billy Graham and Ruth Graham. Billy was gone a lot, a lot more than I've been gone, but his wife, Ruth, supported him. And... My, this is one of the favorite quotes that Gene has of, from Ruth Bell Graham, that if two people always agree on something, one of them's not necessary. It'd probably be me. <laughs> Number four, step with the light. God gives you a step to take, shines light. Take the step, he'll give you another one. Let's stand for closing prayer. Heavenly Father, just want to thank you for the Word of God. We'd be lost without it. Thank you that it's our guidepost, it's our compass, and thank you that we can rely upon it. Thank you also that the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel and the church. Thank you, too, for examples in Scripture, husband and wife teaming together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And help us, Heavenly Father, when you knock on our hearts, help us to Help us to understand the step you're giving us to take and to take it by faith and obedience and you'll give us more. Pray you bless these folks. Guard and keep them in Christ this week. Help us to shine with the light of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.